In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Before I start my sermon, I think it probably would be a good idea to explain this very distracting mark on my forehead, and then I'll only have to talk about it once. I had an unfortunate tangle with a wave in Ocean City. I come from a family that loves to body surf. My grandmother was still body surfing at 84, so unfortunately I misjudged a wave, and the ocean can be very unforgiving. So I'm still a little sore, as a matter of fact. (laughs) But what I'd like to talk about today is one common theme that I find through all of the lessons today, even though the lessons in our uh, lectionary as we have it now um, don't necessarily get picked in order to match one another. The Old Testament follows its own sequence, the epistle follows its own sequence, the gospel follows its own sequence, but there is a theme that I think is found throughout these uh, passages this morning, and that is the theme of idolatry. And I'd like to talk a little bit about idolatry because we so often think of idolatry as something back then in biblical times. It has to do with the making of, of graven images and uh, counting them as gods and falling down and worshiping before them and so on and so forth. And we just don't do that anymore. At least we don't think we do. And that's where I'd like to kind of fill out some of our understanding of what idolatry is all about from a biblical standpoint. Because I think that the church has done itself a disservice in the way in which we have enumerated what we call the Ten Commandments. And I would encourage you to pull out your prayer books and turn to page... um, 317, this is the uh, traditional uh, form of um, the Ten Commandments, which is um, called in our prayer books, the Decalogue. And... um, But that's just the Latin word for ten, deca, log, uh, meaning uh, the law. But in Hebrew, they are not called the Ten Commandments or the Ten Laws. They are called the Ten Declarations. And that is a significant difference, and I want to point that out as we read through this. God spake these words and said, I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, period. Actually, in Hebrew, that is the first declaration. It doesn't command anything. It simply declares something, but it declares something very important. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, I have a claim on your life. I have a claim on your life. So there are actually, we can think there ought to be a therefore there. (laughs) Because the second declaration 
goes on, thou shalt have none other gods but me, and continues, thou shalt not make to thyself any graven image, nor the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down to them, nor worship them. In other words, what we count as the second commandment is just a further expounding of the second commandment in Hebrew reckoning, thou shalt have no other gods but me. Why are graven images singled out? Because they so illustrate the way in which we as human beings try to bring the infinite and unknowable God into something finite that we can grasp hold of and understand. But anything that we can grab hold of and understand with our finite minds is simply not going to be God. It's going to be something less than God. And nothing illustrates that more than a graven image, but it does not limit idolatry to graven images. You understand the difference? It is a significant difference. Because this is what allows Paul to say in the letter to the Colossians, put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So he understands that greed is just as much the worship of something less than God as the falling down and worshiping of any graven image. That's all very important to us because it is just the natural tendency of human beings to try to contain God. And God cannot be contained by anything, especially anything inert <laughs> or anything material, with one exception, and that is in the Incarnation. But there we're not dealing with a graven image. We're dealing with a living being, a person who, as Paul says earlier in Corinthians, is one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He is the image of the invisible God. In the incarnation, yes, we do see a God who we are able to touch and to know in this world in our flesh and blood. But we can no more control Jesus than we can control God the Father. And that's the difference. Because with idolatry, we're sort of able to keep some control over things. It has been said that God made human beings in his image and likeness. And ever since then, we have been trying to return the favor. Now that's been ascribed to various people, including Voltaire, Rousseau, and even Mark Twain. But whoever said it, it, it's a good uh, sentiment in terms of an understanding of this dynamic of worshiping things that are less than God. God made us in his image, 
And ever since then, we have been trying to return the favor. We try to create God in our own image. We can see very angry and vindictive people who have an angry and vindictive God. On the other end of the spectrum, we can see people who are very indulgent, who have trouble believing in a God who is anything other than a warm fuzzy who won't condemn or judge anything or anybody for anything. Neither of these kinds of gods are the true God of the Bible. They are idols. They are fabrications of our own mind that creates a God that somehow justifies and sanctifies our own desires and our own uh, point of view. So, we need to understand that idolatry is something that pervades our uh, humanity in our fallenness. And that is why Paul is a, says what he says in Colossians. Because he understands that this tendency is there even for Christians. When he says, put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, or later, but now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth, he is talking to people to whom he had previously said, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He already has addressed the Colossians as people whose lives are hidden in God. And yet he continues to say, therefore put to death these other things. Put them out of your life. Do not let them get control of you. Do not let them have their sway over you. Or in fact, you may lose that life that is hidden in God through Christ. We might ask, why is it so difficult to worship the one true God so that even faithful people can find it difficult at times? Why is it that we are so attracted, for instance, to material wealth and material goods? Why do we give them an inordinate place within our lives instead of allowing them to serve God who has blessed us with those things? Well, I think the answer to that is twofold. One is very simple, and that is that God is invisible and mysterious and we are physical and down to earth and so things like wealth and prestige and material goods and stuff like that is all stuff that we can touch and feel and know and, and grasp and it can give us a measure 
or an illusion, I should say, of security within our lives, like the man in the parable that Jesus spoke about. The illusion of security for many years, you fool, tonight your life will be demanded of you, God says to him. But the other reason that I think there is this tendency that makes it difficult to have pure worship of the one true God within our lives is that the worship of God demands a relationship. It demands a relationship with someone whom we cannot control and whom we cannot bend to our will. And it involves a willingness to change as a result of being in that relationship. I have a friend that I've been working on for years trying to bring them to Christ. And, uh, and at one point in our uh, pilgrimage together, uh, the person seemed open to really doing some exploration. And so uh, Becky and I suggested uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Uh, it is a book that has helped many people to be able to believe uh, in the gospel of Christ. And uh, sometime later, after the person had read the book, they said, well, it seems like a lot of giving up of control to me. <laughs> said, well, <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> and that's what makes it hard. We want to be able to control. We want to be able to mold and shape according to our own image, our own desires, our own way of thinking. And God will never allow that. We need to think of our relationship with God as a kind of marriage, actually. Because that's the way we are described. We who are believers are the bride of Christ. And so anything we could expect in our marriages, we need to expect in our relationship with God. There are times that we're going to be bewildered, baffled. <laughs> there are going to be times when we don't understand what the other person is thinking. And they may not be ready to share, and so we have to be content with that. There's one important difference between a relationship with God and a relationship with our spouse, however, and that is that we need to understand that if there's a problem, it's on our end and not on God's. We need to allow ourselves to be changed by the one who has an absolute claim on our lives because he created us and he redeemed us. And he continues to love us and what wants what is best for us. So we need to keep these things in mind as we move through our Christian pilgrimage and to remind ourselves that none of us is free of the temptation at any point in our journey 
to grab for something that is less than God. But let us also remember that our God, by his own self-definition, is a jealous God. Jealous in the sense of wanting us, wanting a relationship with us, wanting what is best for us, wanting us to be all that he created us to be, and knowing that that is the only way by which we can find true happiness and true fulfillment and true peace within our lives. And so let us put to death all of these other things and let us rejoice in that life that is already risen within us and is hid with Christ in God. Let us turn away from the idolatries of our life and rededicate ourselves to a more complete and more trusting relationship in the living God, the only God there is. Amen.